Hello and welcome back to Subspace Radio. It is I, Rob Lloyd, and joining me as always is my dear friend Kevin Yank. How are you? Hello, I'm very well, thank you. Yes, another episode of Star Trek is out there in the universe, and we are here to review it. Episode 2 of Season 2 of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. How's your Latin? I'm not going to attempt the Latin, Kevin. If you want to attempt it, you can. Ad Astra Paraspera. Well, that's easy for you to say. To the stars through adversity, I think we were taught in this episode. So yes, Captain Pike is back, not in, not on center stage. He's definitely present, but more on the side brooding. And this is fully focused on our number one. Una Chin Riley is finally put on trial, which has sparked our broader debate of courtroom dramas within Star Trek. But more of that later. Mm. Kevin, what's your first thoughts on episode two of Strange New Worlds? This was some mm, mm, good Star Trek. That's my thought. Wasn't it so good? Oh, it's it just, so good. Oh, this is the kind oh, of Star roll. Trek that I, for a while there, I had given up on ever getting this kind of Star Trek again. That we could yep. sit in this universe that has been created, trust that it is interesting enough to be in, in this place and time and explore some ideas, have some people debate concepts across tables at each other for a full one hour and have it be engrossing and emotional and impactful. That is my favorite kind of Star Trek. And I know we need the phasers. We need the wormholes every now and then. We need to keep things interesting with some lighthearted adventure and action. But this kind of, dare I say it, cerebral Star Trek is my kind of Star Trek. This is what I show up for. Strange New Worlds does it again. It is the most modern of modern Star Trek interpretations, but it's the most classic of classic topics and issues. Star Trek has always been at the cunning edge of political progressive exploration and has always been used as a way of exploring contemporary issues in this futuristic way. This is what Star Trek is for. What can we learn about ourselves as people? So it's all those type of issues about prejudice, about judgment, about indoctrination, about incarceration, about separation, all these type of issues, apartheid, all this stuff brought up in a beautiful manner and written beautifully, performed excellently and executed at the top, top tier level of its game. Yes, absolutely. And that last point, I think, bears repeating, especially in light of last week's episode that, that I thought was let down a bit in the execution. Besides the kind of mm. episode this was, which I love, this is also just a pinnacle of achievement in terms of the execution, the polish, everything from the understated visual effects like an office chair floating in midair through to the acting, which our guest star this week, Yatide Badaki, nailed it. She had me oh. in tears, a character I have never met before. Just everything about this episode not only was my type, but I dare say this is the best courtroom drama we've ever seen in Star Trek. She was particularly good in the way of her performance is there's a, a tendency to have the science fiction style of acting or the genre style of acting. And whether it's a bit stilted, whether it's a bit theatrical, whether it's more show than actual, let the audience fill in the dots. It's more of a general topic. If you look at some of the greatest performances in science fiction, that they're not rooted in any genre, but she brought this incredible and natural process to her performance. Mm. There was a great poise to her and there was a great energy to her that was both appropriate for the genre, but also brought that fresh naturalistic element that people could look at that and go, it is sci-fi, but it. That's not the main focus of this. She was incredible and filled in the brief of what a guest star should be. And when everyone gave her a standing ovation at the end, yeah. I think we all joined in. Yeah. So we will be looking at courtroom dramas in Star Trek this week. But before we do, is there anything that you want to highlight here that stood out to you in this episode? I think every character had their part to play, even 
Pike's lover from episode one, who's coming in here, she had her own battle and journeys to go with yeah. and what she had to endure through Federation. Great little cute moment with Spock causing such a public stir. <laughs> I I loved that scene of the Vulcans, quote unquote, arguing at a table in the cafe and Benga and Ortegas kind of analyzing it from a distance. And she's saying, are you <laughs> messing with me right now? It was hilarious. In the moments after that scene, I went, I wonder if that scene is going to be about anything. Are we going to end up, is that argument going to have a consequence later? And it didn't. It was mm. really, that scene was there for comic relief to let the audience breathe out before the next dose of courtroom drama. But for that, I loved it. And uh, it, it gave Mbenga and Ortega something to do other than sing Una's praises on the witness stand. And yeah, great to see them. That was a good moment representation of the comedy of the Vulcan personality, as opposed to last week with the cramming in of the... Yeah what's your catchphrase when you do the ships. Yeah, beautiful moments there. A nice bit of tension between April and Pike and a bit more delving into Robert April being captain of the Enterprise before Pike. Yeah. And Already a hint of that future prequel to the prequel to the prequel that we're going to get, <laughs> Robert April's Enterprise. Which will be called Boldly Go. Yeah. So yeah, everything was firing off really nicely. I love the exploration of the Illyrian culture and the persecution. Such a horrifying, heartbreaking story about hiding who you are and those who can and those who can't. Yeah, it got real. Um, they moved uh, past the abstract idea of racism in the Federation into what would that actually mean in practice? In what way would those people suffer in that society? And we got to see it. We got to see the scene of uh, baby Una sitting there with a broken leg, not being able to get it treated. And it was hard to watch. Yeah. And Rebecca Romain just is, yeah, is killing it. She's doing such a good job and that's a credit to her because, you know, for so long she was the model turned actor yeah. and was employed like as Mystique in the X-Men movies for her appearance. But she has finally been able to go, no, 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 I've got some skills here. I've got some talent here. She keeps surprising she's me. She's wonderful. Every time we see an episode featuring Una, I come away impressed at how how much I like the character. And I was like, wow, I knew I liked yes. you, but I didn't know I liked you that much. And <laughs> this episode brings that to a new high. The long soliloquy she gave when her attorney put her on the witness stand by surprise, one of my small objections to the logic of this episode, would your defense attorney really put you on the witness stand? <laughs> Without briefing you, <laughs> that's not a real life thing. It's but uh, it's very Perry Mason is, yes, or Matlock very dramatic style of it. Yeah, um, <laughs> but considering where some other courtroom dramas in Star Trek have gone over the years, this was one of the more realistic ones. But once she got up there on the witness stand and she started telling her story, I had this moment of. Oh, here we go. When she started with the motto of the Federation, I was like, eh, this might be a little overwritten, but she got me. The oh. emotion was there. It pulled me in and I was crying along with her by the end. Beautiful episode. Absolutely beautiful. It was an easy watch. Did you notice that the courtroom was the reused Starfleet headquarters bridge from Discovery? I didn't. Oh, you didn't because you haven't seen the latest season of Star Trek Discovery. I haven't. I so haven't. yeah, stay tuned for, for your rewatch. That room is going to be very familiar. That room that is <laughs> ring-shaped with a big yes. open space in the middle. That is the bridge of Starfleet headquarters. And that open space is filled by a galactic map in Discovery. Here, it wasn't really filled by anything. They just shot around it and across it. And it made it a very strangely claustrophobic for me anyway, courtroom. Although it was a large space, everyone was like pressed up against the wall at all times. Very and, much so. And uh, the lawyer walking around the side to put the book on the desk, it was like, felt very intrusive that she's going on a long walk. You can't just <laughs> pretend you accidentally ended up here. This is where you intended to get if you're walking all the way around that ring. So it was very, exactly. very strange. I couldn't decide if I liked it or disliked it. I thought... <laughs> because it is so conspicuously the same room we have seen recently in Discovery, I felt it was a bit of a shame because it took me out of it. It broke the reality right. that this room that exists in the 32nd century also exists here in the uh, 23rd somehow. But that was a minor thing. I think what I like the most is the legal machinations of this episode. That trick they pulled of, yeah, 
she may have technically broke this law, but there is also another law that applies equally, and it is our asylum law, and you get to choose which one you apply here. I'm no legal expert, but as a Joe Schmo viewing public of Star Trek, it at least was, it felt to me like a convincing reason for a court case to not go in an expected direction. It felt like a plot twist that I could buy. They called it out, mm. which I really appreciated. Yeah. At the end, they just said, Una said it herself, that we this was just a technicality and the real work carries on that we now need to build up this recognition for the Illyrian people, and it's a start. And that they found that was really impressive to me, because I think I said at the end of last season, my worry is that we know Julian Bashir is discriminated against in Deep Space Nine a mm -hmm. hundred years from now. So what satisfying end is this arc of Una's going to lead us to? I couldn't see the space between she gets drums out of Starfleet because the Federation is still racist at this point, and yeah. we break the canon. And they threaded that needle. In fact, it was so deft, I can only assume they worked out how they were going to thread it when they wrote the ending to the previous season. Hiding the fact of the asylum law applying in plain sight was a beautiful magic trick and really brought oh, the episode like, home for me. Just the cold hard reality of the fact that the laws were created for this good to stop the horrors of the eugenic wars coming back, which is a fascinating thing to read up on from what is touched on from uh, space and all that mm. type of stuff. But to see that lofty heights of going, we have set up these laws to protect us from a war happening again, but how that filters down to everyday people, that it becomes, people become labeled and slurs are blazoned across their doors and they have to go into hiding to get medical attention just from the lofty heights of not wanting to start another galactic war down to pure prejudice and racism showing its mm. head. It's wonderfully fascinating blend of gray within the bright colors of this utopian future, which it isn't tarnished by it because it's what is being fought at to keep that vision of a bright future, which is masterful. That's what Star Trek is, does so well. Stuff like that, where it really brings out that, the beautiful grays of this bright new future. The thing that I most narrowed my eyes at suspiciously in the legalese they were throwing <laughs> around was in the asylum law, they said that people may seek safety within Starfleet. And that seemed like a strange thing to have on the law books. Because if, <laughs> if you transpose that to today, that's like the US Navy having a law on the books that says that people in a war zone may seek safety within the U.S. Navy, which seems like a weird place to seek safety. Like the, <laughs> the separation between the military organization and the state is very interesting there. My way that I explain that in my head is that maybe this is like an old law that was on the books before the Federation, when it was just Starfleet out there roaming the stars, in which case it would make yeah. sense to have a policy around asylum that was specific to Starfleet. And the idea that... Una's lawyer would have found this really old law in the books is especially tickling to me if that's, uh, <laughs> if that's what we accept. Yeah, it's a glowing praise all Absolutely. around for an yeah. excellently written, beautiful, executed piece of television, whether it be sci-fi or not. It's just wonderful. And that led us down the, the much easier path of previous Star Trek episodes. I type in Star Trek courtroom episodes. I got There's so many two. lists. There's one or I, two. Yeah. Typing in Captain Away last week, not so, no, much. not so much. This one, there was a plethora of choices. Well, we, we have to test ourselves now and then, but when they give us a layup like this, we also need to we need to take the opportunity. We're not going to have a better opportunity to talk about Starfleet courtroom procedures than we have here today. We've touched on episodes with a courtroom feel or have been mentioned in previous episodes, like we have mentioned the Menagerie. We've mentioned Measure of a Man, we've mentioned a couple of others in passing, but we have not dedicated an entire episode to the courtroom. Yeah, let's not hold back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat at least one of the ones that you mentioned in my uh, choices. But look, we said last week, new rule, Enterprise goes first because it's er earliest in the timeline. So do either of us have an Enterprise episode? I specifically picked an Enterprise because I went, you know what? 
I am doing a Star Ooh. Trek podcast. We are into our second season of Strange New Worlds, and I've only I started watching Enterprise, yeah. and then gave up. And so I went, you know what? No, let's go in and do this, Rob. Let's take this seriously. And it's appeared in every single one of the lists that I've found online. And it's quite high up in the list. So I've gone with Judgment Season 2, Episode 19 of Enterprise. Ooh, yeah, good one. This one always comes to mind because around the time this aired, Star Trek was just getting serious about the internet. Like they had a website that they <laughs> updated every week for the first time. And uh, they were releasing audio commentaries along with significant episodes. Wonderful. And there was an audio commentary by, I believe, the writers of this episode released at the same time as the episode so that you could watch the episode and then you could rewatch it with the audio commentary. And that audio commentary was lost when the Star Trek website changed hands and was torn down and rebuilt from scratch. But I believe Trek Corps has an archival copy of it. So if anyone is following our advice and watching Judgment this week, you can also pick up that audio commentary too. I'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. So to recite the IMDB outline of this story, after Enterprise lends aid to a group of accused rebels, Captain Archer faces a tribunal and charges of conspiracy against the Klingon Empire. Mm. Yes, this is what I like to think of as a flavor of Star Trek VI. Oh, yes. Yeah, it definitely has the Easter egg of using the exact same set and some of the props from uh, Undiscovered Country. Now, for me, there is some incredible stuff in here. There is some amazing stuff in here. But for me, also, it's a case of understanding why I never really connected with Enterprise. Ah. All the elements are there, yep. but it just doesn't. It's got your it General Martok, Rob. How could you not like? Oh, who is outstanding? Outstanding. J.G. Hertzler plays Kolos, the yes. advocate. Who is outstanding, even though in many of the shots, you can clearly see the Klingon bumps rising on the side. <laughs> the makeup hasn't. The makeup hasn't been stuck down properly. And they went, we don't have enough time. Go with it. <laughs> he is friggin' amazing yeah. in this episode. Incredible stuff. And has the best monologue that I've seen talking about a race within Star Trek since David Warner's speech as the Cardassian interrogator. Mm. Like, just amazing. But it just, it's an interesting way of starting within the trial and then the flashbacks to what happened. And it's an old trait used many times of, the different point of view. So the Klingon gives his point of view of what happened, yeah. which is very clearly a simplified, if you will, for legal expediency. It's very much a Archer focused episode. So you see the doctor a little bit in a really nice tense, it's almost espionage or <laughs> that's a real yes. word type of scene at the start. And you've got to Paul and the others up on enterprise sorting it out in the background, but it's really a two hander really with Scott Bakula. And our dear old Martok with a different name. Yeah. Xenopolisithemia, the uh, disease that Phlox mentions when he's visiting Archer in his cell, I believe <laughs> is the <laughs> fatal disease that Dr. McCoy had in For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky way back in the original series. So a deep cut there. Nice little reference there. So there's a lot of great stuff there. And of course, they're sent to Ruapente at the end. But it's kind of a... It's a low budget Ruapente, isn't it? Very low budget. I felt like I was kicked in the knees <laughs> slash balls watching it. <laughs> and despite how difficult it was for them to get Kirk and Spock off oh, yeah. Ruapente to just... <laughs> <laughs> we bribed a, a transport captain. <laughs> yeah, he just walks in and goes, all right, let's go, shall we? <laughs> Well, this is why they tightened up security at Ruripenthe. It's all because yeah. of that. Thank you. So, yeah, it was a bit of a n nothing end. You just go, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. But for me, the highlight is not so much the trial, which is the focus. And we always know that it was going to be a dodgy trial anyway, but they just, there wasn't any confrontation of it. It was more just, this is the process you got to go through it. Let's just get you to the prison and get you out. Yeah, I think it needed one more hook for me. When yeah. the thing that this episode rests on is Archer going to be able to tell his version of events because the Klingon legal system is stacked against him 
and even his own mm. advocate is not interested in his version of events because they are so used to the presumption of guilt. And in yeah. the end, the way Archer convinces his advocate to listen to him is to me somewhat unsatisfying. Archer says something like, why don't you care about justice? And his advocate goes, don't be so quick to judge me. I used to care about justice. And Archer says, really? And that's basically it. That's the entire convincing that he has to do. At that point, the advocate basically talks himself into it and goes, oh, yeah, I remember when these courts were willing to listen and they weren't just a tool for the military to, to advance their agenda. And the fact that Archer does very little in order to secure oh. his own freedom here, it's... This is something that happens now and then in Star Trek stories, I find, is that the, the, the story kind of advances on its own and there is no sense of it having been earned. Scott Bakula is an incredible actor. His best work is in Quantum Leap, where he does everything. He does dramatic work. He does comedy work. He sings. He dances. He does fight choreography. He does car chases. He impersonates women. He plays a monkey in one episode. He plays a vampire in one episode. He does it. The man has range. He's definitely up for anything. But it's amazing in watching this as the lead character in a Star Trek show, he is such a passenger. Mm, yeah. He does nothing to take hold of the story. Mm -hmm. So much so that he everything happens to yeah. him. Even his escape. He has he just at the end of it, was it is it Dominic Keating, whatever the Malcolm Reed. Yeah, comes in and just goes, all right, we're going yeah. now. And so we've done all this for you. And he's, he just swans through this 45-minute episode. Yeah. He's the captain. <laughs> and he's just, he's like lethargic. Is he on medication? It's really quite disheartening because I know Bacula can step up. Bacula could so have a, a speech to rival Patrick Stewart. Mm. He could do some really hardcore muscle work like, like a Avery Brooks. He could do like some classy, sassy stuff. Like Kate Mulgrew, for heaven's sake, but he is just so passive here that the highlight of the performance is Collis's speech. And I've got it quoted here. It's wonderful. My father was a teacher. My mother, a biologist at the university. They encouraged me to take up law. Now all young people want to do is take up weapons as soon as they can hold them. They're told there's honor in victory, any victory. What honor is there in a victory over a weaker opponent? Had Juris destroyed that ship, he would have been lauded as a hero of the Empire for murdering helpless refugees. We were a great society not so long ago, when honor was earned through integrity and acts of true courage, not senseless bloodshed. And that's coming from a Klingon. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's freaking amazing. That's probably some of the deepest implied change to Klingon society that we get in all of Star Trek. Like, Klingons, they don't really have an arc. And we've talked about the Cardassians now and then about how we get these glimpses of how they used to be and how they are today is not how they used to be. This is not their finest hour. Whereas Klingons, we are told again and again, this is their finest hour. This is their greatest glory. And this hint that there maybe was a different version of Klingon culture before this is not something we often get. I think Star Trek might be a little afraid to break what they have in Klingons. And uh, yeah, they we get a hint at something more here that's very tantalizing. It's so tantalizing, especially because we move ahead to, say, looking at Discovery Season 1, where they knuckle down on the horror and the monstrous type of nature of the Klingons. Yeah. And it just doesn't work. They're going, look at this incredible moment. The only incredible moment in quite bland episode of Star Trek that could have achieved so much more, it goes to show that you can see the show's tired. This is filmed after a good 10 years after when Next Gen was at its height or when Deep Space Nine was close to beginning, but it looked cheaper. It looked like it was done earlier. It looked like it was filmed in the mid 80s. Star Trek VI is what hurts this episode the most in my mind because here we yeah. have a great example of less is more. There is much less of that Klingon courtroom in Star Trek VI, but it is so much more powerful 
in part because it's darker. We see less of it. Mm -hmm. It is more cinematic. More is left to the imagination. It is a scarier place in Star Trek VI than it is here, where it is defanged because we see behind the scenes. We see into every corner. We are given a long time to look around in that crowd and realize they're not actually that scary. They're just Klingon rabble who will shout at anything. And the judge is less scary because he talks more. He engages with with the idea of justice in a way that the... And he's not hidden in the background with almost his white eyes going, Silence. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if Star Trek VI had never been done, I feel like I would enjoy this episode a lot more because we would be seeing something we'd not seen before and we wouldn't have that stronger example of the same thing to hold it up against. Yeah, so for me, it's... It just fell short of what it could have done, and it had its lead very passive, but a standout performance yeah. from from Martok as Colos, and an incredible speech of what could, what we could have, Kevin, with the Klingons, if, the, if they just listen to their own history and go, we can have the Klingons as a deep, rich culture, as opposed to just a one-note archetype. From Enterprise, and I'm glad it wasn't me complaining about Enterprise for once this week. Thank you for taking us there, Rob. I should play my part in this Star Trek <laughs> podcast and actually watch all of it. And that means, that, so that I am aware that does mean I have to admit to, I will have to watch Discovery Season 4. <laughs> a nice standalone episode of Enterprise as well. I think it is a good way to get a taste of what Enterprise was. This is an early episode of Enterprise. Well, that was, but that's Season 2. Oh. That's Season 2, Episode 19. Yeah. So they should be... The, the other episode I'm going to talk about is from a Star Trek series early on. So like within the first seven episodes, mm. but this is like where it should be quite established. Yeah. And I'm there going, no, this, it feels like an earlier season one type episode. Well, I'm going to take us to the original series and uh, the episode that this week's episode of Strange New World owes so much to, and that is Court Martial, season one, episode 14 of the original series. This is where Captain Kirk is put on trial for the murder of one of his crew members. The episode opens with the ship docking for repairs after an ion storm. And the ship is damaged. And the entire proceedings of this court is because during that storm, the Enterprise lost a crew member. There was a crew member, uh, Ben Finney, who was in the weather pod at the front of the ship. And when the ship went to red alert, when the ion storm got bad enough, they had to eject that pod. And Kirk says he gave Ben Finney plenty of time to get out of that pod and ejected it after he sounded the red alert. But the computer records say that the ship was not yet at red alert when, when Kirk pressed the button. And this episode, it is not the first original series courtroom drama. That comes back to the menagerie that we have talked about before, the two-parter where the Enterprise crew sits in the courtroom and watches an episode of Star Trek on An TV. episode of Star Trek. Yeah. There was a bit of that this week as well of uh, the Enterprise crew watching the court proceedings on their monitors. But yeah, where the menagerie kind of sets out, you know, it's got the ringing the bell and it's got the courtroom set. This is the one where most of the story is in the courtroom rather than the courtroom being a framing device for watching an adventure. What we get from this episode is the dress uniforms with the interesting like jewelry emblems that are exactly like the ones we see in Strange New Worlds this week. We get the chair with the lit the lit circle that you put your palm on to identify yourself yeah. and to uh, read out your record. The little tapes, which are ubiquitous within the original series, but they are prominently used in court martial to like everyone who testifies puts their tape in the computer and it reads out their their record. And then when they finish their testimony, they take their tape with them as a record of everything that they said. And all of that is here in Strange New World. So it was obvious to me that they went back to court martial and plumbed its depth deeply. So if nothing else, if you agree with us that this is a great episode of Star Trek, it's worth going back to court martial to see where a lot of the template is created so long ago. I was watching episode two and Patel was there in the prosecution and she had the big brooch of 
multicolored yeah. things. I'm going, that's got to be from the original series. Oh, it series. is totally from the so, original series. Um, they look remarkably <laughs> similar. The thing that happens in the original series, though, is like the costume department isn't quite as well paid. And so from scene to scene, <laughs> some of the characters' parts of their sculptures on their chest disappear and reappear as the continuity is not quite there. Love <laughs> it. It is love so it. charming. Yeah. Who knows what they mean? But it seems like the one thing you can infer is the higher your rank, the more pottery you have glued to your chest. <laughs> more ceramics right. that you yeah, have yeah. attached. So the main thing put on trial is the chain of command and how... Ultimately, the fascination of this episode is we get to see what law looks like in the Star Trek universe. We meet the prosecutor, Ariel Shaw, who is an ex-lover of Kirk's. Once he's been accused, but before the court-martial is convened, Kirk walks around the space station and a lot of his like old classroom buddies are like giving him the side eye and like presuming his guilt. So that is something we learn about Kirk is that people are pretty quick to assume his guilt in a matter of negligence as a captain. <laughs> so there's six people there and they're all like, yeah, I think he did it. But uh, over in the corner of the bar is this beautifully dressed woman. And Kirk is so happy to see her because it's a friendly face in this hostile crowd. And it's a, a woman that he had a relationship with previously. They're still very lovey-dovey. And she's, he says, actually, it's lucky I meet you because I could really use a lawyer right now. And she goes, sorry, I'm busy. And it is revealed at the end of the scene that she has actually been tapped as the prosecutor. So she is going to have to prosecute her mm -hmm. ex-lover. A pattern that is repeated in a Next Generation episode that we're going to be talking about in a little bit. But yes, she is the prosecutor. The defense attorney that Kirk ends up getting at her suggestion is Samuel T. Cogley, attorney at law. And he moves into Kirk's quarters and fills the place with books. There's like books stacked 10 high on his sofa, on all of his desks, in every surface, all these brown legal tomes. And that is the main and, as far as I can tell, only character trait we are given for Samuel T. Cogley is that he likes the law in print. Nice to see another print book here this week in uh, Strange New Worlds in the ultimate uh, Quite a few little... Twist. Quite a few appearances of old school books, yeah. which is good. But uh, yeah, so watching those two guest stars fight it out through the objections and arguments of a courtroom is the main fascination of this episode. The actual like legal case is much less strong and interesting than we get elsewhere in Star Trek. It is ultimately a case of Kirk's word against the computer records. And the presumption is the computer is infallible. It can't be wrong. It's Kirk's word against an infallible record, so Kirk's obviously guilty. The big twist I use with big air quotes here is when Spock discovers that he can beat the Enterprise computer at chess, which we are led to believe is evidence that the computer has been tampered with. So because someone tampered with the records of whether Kirk pressed the button before the red alert or not, that tampering somehow made the computer less good at chess, and that is how Spock discovers the wrongdoing. Makes perfect sense to me. When this is revealed, this earth-shattering evidence that Spock can beat the computer <laughs> at chess, Samuel T. Cogley, attorney at law, demands that the court adjourn to the Enterprise so that Kirk can face his accuser. One of the guarantees of Federation law is that you will be allowed to face your accuser. And in this case, the accuser is the Enterprise computer itself. And so ah, it's, nice. uh, it's pretty drawn out at that point. The, oh, okay. <laughs> the big twist in this courtroom drama is that we're going to get to move the court to the Enterprise. And then they have a, a session in the briefing room where Spock beats the computer at chess for the entertainment Excellent. of the, the co convened officials. And then they move to the bridge where it is a bit more interesting. They evacuate the ship so that no one is left aboard. And then the people in the court, McCoy walks around with a microphone and puts it to each of their chests and does a little thing that cancels out the sound of their heartbeat. And then they have the computer play all audible sounds left on the ship. And there is one heartbeat left. And that is the revelation that Ben Finney did not die in the ion storm. He actually faked his own death by modifying the computer records. And Kirk goes and has a fist fight with him in engineering. <laughs> <laughs> 
how all good courtroom dramas should finish. That's, right. That's what was missing in episode two of That's Strange right. New World season There was no two. fist fight. Shame. So, yeah. All it right. sounds so, hinky, and it is, but I think it's still worth watching. Definitely. And see, like, exploring that type of procedure of the Federation in such early stages of the show's development yeah. within its first year, first couple of episodes. It is, is interesting to, to realize now. that Star Trek in its first year had two courtroom drama episodes, and one of them was a two-parter. So three of the yeah. first 24 episodes of Star Trek were courtroom dramas. They knew the formula worked early. But as we explored, like with The Menagerie, there's not much courtroom no. drama going on there. Yeah. <laughs> it's out of like a hundred minute two-parter it's 80 percent oh look at the clips from the previous scene we never court martial has a lot of that fun that we get this episode as well where we get members of the crew brought up as witnesses and asked questions like ariel shaw asks mccoy for example he says dr mccoy you're an expert in space psychology aren't you and he goes i know something about it and just these very in character answers from our favorite characters is really fun I've always wanted to study space psychology. <laughs> uh, you got a second one? I do. I do. And I've got to go back to, to, to my home base. So we're looking at, as I've alluded to, we're going to season one of Deep Space Nine, episode eight. So early on in the process, we're looking at Dax. This really is the establishment of, okay, let's, we've created these characters. Let's find out more about mm. them. And even though the trill had appeared in next gen yeah there was one episode called the host i think that kind of established the mechanics of how trill work yes but this is the one that really explores the essence of what it is and i was fascinated by the trill as a character because it's very much the star trek uh terminology and interpretation of what they do in doctor who so in doctor who when they change the actor they do a process called regeneration that the only time lords can do. So I was fascinated by within this Star Trek thing, they could never do something as ridiculous as just regeneration. But if they have a symbiote that is inside the trill, it's a part of this process and culture. And then they move that creature inside another host and the memories are left within that symbiote. But then there's the new personality come through. It's all that lovely, complicated Star Trek stuff. But this is the process of let's actually look at the fundamental creation of this species. What personality means, what identity means within this culture and whether someone, if a crime was committed in a previous host, would that person yeah, be who now is the new host be culpable? And it was always a fascinating concept of bringing on a trill who in their past life was dear friends, a mentor to our lead character, Cisco. And it was always the great gag of uh, always referring to Jadzia as old man, because that's what he used to call Curzon, the previous host. And so there's a lot of stuff done here. We find out a lot about Jadzia and how she became the host. We find out a lot about Curzon, who he was as a person, his relationship with Cisco. A lot of that is established here. Now, Dax is a, an episode that stands out for many reasons, but the main reason is someone we've mentioned before on this show, especially when we looked at the animated series of the 60s, this is actually co-written by the great DC Fontana. Ah, very good. Yes, who was brought on and said in production notes that she actually found it quite difficult to focus on an episode that's focused on character because, as she said, this is only the eighth episode. You haven't really established the individual characters here. You've got archetypes. So she was brought on with a co-writer, Peter Allen Fields, who came up with the idea, and the two of them had written together on The Six Million Dollar Man. And she, of course, had extensive history with the original series and the animated series. But it's actually a really good episode. I remember watching this when I was when it first came out and it sticks in my head, there's some beautiful moments in there, like the on the offside, like the tension between Quark and Odo is still very much in its early yeah. stages. So it's very tense and antagonistic. The There's a beautiful moment when representatives from this culture who have come to put Jadzia on trial, sneak onto the base and have all the codes and can easily get out, but then brought back in with some Nice maneuvering from Cisco showing how smart he is to get a tractor beam in 
And in an interrogation interview scene with Cisco and Kira, they good cop, bad cop each other. They do this wonderful double play with the representative from that culture to find out that he actually got the codes and everything from the Cardassians. It's a bit of a staple of TV legal dramas that the investigation continues while the court case is proceeding. That's something that I'm pretty sure never happens in real life, that uh, there's a ticking clock because the court case is happening at the same time. When I was growing up, there was Perry Mason and his investigator doing work was William Capp from The Greatest American Hero. And in this case, it's Odo going to the planet where this happened and finding out what he can. So like the trial is there more as a background, because as, yeah. as they always say, it's not a trial. It's not a trial. It's just a hearing. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's just a way for us to find out more about it. And we hear it from a scientific point of view. We hear it from a moral point of view, an emotional point of view, a philosophical point of view. So we, in this episode, we find out more about the Trill culture and the process of it than in any other episode we have before. There's one episode in Discovery Season 3 where we have the Trill crewmate coming on. And that's a really good episode. That's one of the ones that I particularly yeah. loved. But yeah, this one, it focuses on that. And the characters are still quite raw. Bashir is at his hound dog, <laughs> uh, love rat best, but steps up and speaks beautifully from a medical point of view. This is a really good parallel to this week's episode of Strange New Worlds. I feel like it lands at about the same place in the series as this one does. We're at episode 12 because season one had 10 episodes in it. This is episode eight, not that far apart. It's taking a character mm. that we presume is going to stick around for the rest of the series, but we know we have no guarantee of that. So it is at least yeah, plausible exactly. that we are about to see them locked up for the rest of their lives or drummed out of Starfleet, as the case may be. So there is some believable jeopardy here. And it is the court case is an opportunity to delve deeply into not just the character that's on trial, but a bunch of other characters and learn a bunch about them under that pressure. It's actually quite a good episode. It's a good little mystery that they have to solve. But one of the most heartbreaking things for me is at the time of this recording, watching the episode, I'm there going, I started watching this when I was a teenager, obviously. And in the episode, they talk about this young woman, Jadzia Dax, who is 28. And I'm there going, yep, I am now 45 <laughs> years old. That's almost two young women old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for pointing that out, sure, Kevin. Thank sure, you. Anytime. Time is a bitch sometimes. <laughs> but it's a great episode. There's a wonderful supporting cast. You've got Anne Hanny as the, the judge coming in. She's done great work in Liar and Mrs. Doubtfire. Wonderful character actress coming in as the Bajoran judge to oversee things. You've got the wonderful Gregory Itzen. He's done stuff like 24 and he's played Richard Nixon and he's done like lots of, this is a TV staple and uh, just wonderful character actors filling out this hour of wonderful television. And the big reveal at the end, obviously, is that Curzon could not have possibly been there because he was in the bed of the man who died's wife. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Yes. Uh, uh, to, to use one of your turns of phrase, Rob, this is uh, innocence proven by being a dog. <laughs> I'm so glad that has caught on. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's a still it's very much in that early 90s perception of gender and identity. So it's so binary. Mm. It is so binary. There are so many things about Curzon, the male and the older, hardened drinker and womanizer. And Jadzia is the young woman, noble. Mm. And yeah, there is a line where Cisco goes, if you weren't a woman, I would. <laughs> and you there go. Oh. They were trying. They were trying. They were. Yeah. They're still working within the confines of the time that they were at. They were pushing ahead, but still staying within their little bubble. But yeah. And it's all revealed at the end in the last scene that, because it was all about committing treason and that Curzon was accused of sending this message to the rebels, but actually it was the guy who died who sent it to the rebels. Mm. And when the rebels, the rebels didn't like him and they killed him off. This guy clearly has become a legend and a hero and his death inspired victory. And he's seen as a hero where at home he was, it's alluded to, he was 
not a nice person at all. And, but the legend is more important and that has to stay yeah, on. Yeah. And it's quite sad at the end going back. Cause there's a moment she plays it quite rattled. Terry Farrell. She's a wonderful performer and she's like battling with all the personas, memories within her and having this talk with this former lover of Curzon's. And I think it's Indina touches Jadzia on the face and goes, just do one thing for me live, live a long and happy life. And I'm going, she doesn't get that. <laughs> she does. <laughs> Damn you, Gold cut. Yeah. But yeah, it's a, it's a good episode in the early days of a show finding its feet. Yeah. And it's, it does a, a creative way of rather complicated alien species, giving it depth and variety to get an early nineties mainstream audience watching going what the hell's going on here we just want the bumps on the head <laughs> all right i'm gonna take us back to the next generation and this is a this is an easy one like this is a nothing but the net sort of pick because it is often sure. on lists of best ever episodes of star trek the next generation and it is the Measure of a Man, season two, Measure episode of a man. nine. We can't not talk about The Measure of a Man under the heading of courtroom dramas. It was before this week's episode of Strange New Worlds. It was my favorite courtroom drama. I think it's the strongest story. I think some people may consider it still stronger than what we got this week from Strange New Worlds, but I've watched the two in close succession, and I think this one does some great storytelling, but Strange New Worlds is a stronger courtroom drama for sure. This episode okay. is all about the question of, is Data a toaster? To put it in the words of our guest star, Captain Philippa Louvois, who is the previous kind of implied love interest of Captain Picard. And when Picard goes looking for someone to help him with his legal problems. Philippa Lavoie is waiting for him there on this starbase. The dynamic is slightly different. Apparently, Philippa Lavoie, in her previous life, prosecuted Picard for a case involving the Stargazer. And there uh -huh. are some hard feelings, but also you can tell there is a lot of attraction between them. She says it's, I'm not going to get this line exactly right, but she says something along the lines of, it is reassuring to my worldview that you, Captain Picard, are still a pompous ass and a damn sexy man. <laughs> she actually yeah. says sexy yeah, man? Says sexy man. Yeah. Yes. Unless I'm misremembering, but it is something along those lines. <laughs> But yeah, so this is an episode that's actually tied to some of the lore that we got in early Star Trek Picard seasons, season one particularly, where Bruce Maddox, who is the mad scientist at Starfleet that wants to, in this episode, disassemble data for parts in order to understand how he works so he can make a thousand more datas. But he's not 100% sure he's going to be able to figure it out. He'll cross that bridge when he comes to it. But first... He needs to take Data under his command and pull him to pieces. And so Data, at first he objects. He says, I don't think you've done the groundwork necessary for an experiment of this nature. But the initial ruling is that Data cannot refuse, that he is property. He is an object and he is owned by Starfleet. And he can not decline this experiment any more than the computer of the Enterprise could decline a refit. And this is what prompts Sheesh. the court case. The beautiful twist in this episode that is a stroke of genius from Melinda Snodgrass, who wrote this episode. This is her first episode of Star Trek she's written. She worked for several years as a lawyer, which is why she was familiar enough with court proceedings to, to pitch a, a courtroom drama for her first episode. But the thing she does here is that the JAG office on this starbase is just getting established. And Lavoie here, Captain Lavoie, has no staff. There are no lawyers available. And she says, under these circumstances, Starfleet procedure is clear. I get to draft the most senior ranking officers to, be, to act as counsel in this case. And Picard, you're most senior, so you'll be defense. And Riker, you need to be the prosecutor. And Riker says, I can't argue for Data's ineligibility as a sentient being because I don't believe it. But she says, then I'll rule summarily against him. So this is, a, among other things, a great Riker episode, as Riker needs to swallow his friendship and his belief in Data and do his best to mount a case 
for the fact that data is nothing more than uh, wow. a, a walking, talking machine. There's a beautiful scene where Riker is in the library section researching data schematics and finds his deactivation switch on his back and Riker sees it and you it's just a close-up on Riker where you see him like light up in delight he can't believe his luck and then he realizes what this will mean to his friend and he is deflated and the moment where he switches off data on the witness stand and data slumps in his chair is it takes my breath away now even though I've seen this episode five ten times now like this week's episode of Strange New Worlds, it has the strong emotional speeches that get me all choked up because people in Star Trek care about things like principles and the truth, and it's just so heartwarming. <laughs> all of that is here. What is lacking is there is no real kind of legal mechanism that comes into play. All that kind of happens is that Picard gives a better speech than Riker, and the judge says, I'm convinced. There's not much more beyond that. There is some, let's tease apart what it means to be sentient. It means three things. Data clearly satisfies two of the three, so what about the third one? And there is a bit of exploration of the ideas here, but it's not quite as satisfying an unwinding of the facts as what we get in Una's case this week. And um, and this is early on as well. So this is like uh, season two. Yeah, I think what we're learning is um, a good series of Star Trek needs at least one courtroom drama in its first season to get its characters off the ground. It really does. It really does. And this is one that people refer to so often when it comes to next-gen episodes and Star Trek episodes in general mm -hmm. that is just top tier. And it's the quintessential elements of sci-fi of, like you said, what is humanity against technology? It's the same thing that they explore quite well in Voyager with Robert Picardo's Doctor. What is, a, what is just a simple program and what is a personality and how do you divine humanity, which is what you want to see in, in sci-fi. I'd say arguably this is the episode where we recognize Data for what he can be in this crew. He says things in his purely logical, mechanical way that are so heartwarming. Like when Picard is appointed to be his counselor, Picard says, look, if there's anyone else who you think would do a better job, and Data says, Captain, I have full faith in your ability to represent my interests. And it's just like that bromance starts right there, that that Data expressing <laughs> his undying confidence in Picard to look after him is there. And at the very last scene of this episode, as everyone is celebrating Data's victory, Riker is nowhere to be found and Data tracks him down in the observation lounge and Riker is like leaning against the window, gazing off into space going, I don't deserve to be in the celebration. I almost won. Aww. I could have cost you your life, Data. And Data says, if you hadn't done it, I would have been ruled against. Isn't that right? And Riker says, yeah. And he goes, you injured yourself to save me. What better sign of friendship is there? And <laughs> it's just these earnest declarations of professional love for each other it really gets me every time. And there was plenty of that here. I th and that's... It's a big thing about Star Trek because it is earnest and procedural. Mm. It's way of like rank and file. And so when these characters are working through whether it be the original series or whether it be in next gen or any of them they're just so stuck in their roles of command and the federation and stuff so when they show a they crack through that exterior with that same earnestness whenever you have spock turn to kirk and call him jim and open up honestly and earnestly from his heart you go oh and it's the same here with riker being comforted by data among all the other reasons to go back and watch the measure of the man the one that is often forgotten is that this is the first poker game in star trek the next generation data learns to play poker in the opening cold open of this episode good good so yeah I, it would be remiss in this star trek podcast not to, to us to mention at the end of it all what a wonderful exploration of the trials and tribulations of the federation in the star trek world but big news that's just broken and heartbreaking news, even though it was commissioned for a second season, Paramount Plus has pulled the plug on Star Trek Prodigy. So in a matter of days, season one will be taken off the air. And even though they've already done the season two, 
there's no guarantee of where it will be played and when it will be yeah, coming season out. Season two so, is in the final stages of post-production, we're told, and it will still get completed. My understanding here is Paramount has paid for the production, but they have declined to retain the rights to actually air the thing. So that... But it is a co-production with Nickelodeon, mm. so... And it's also not coming probably... to Nickelodeon. So both places that it was airing are no longer... They have divested themselves of those rights. And some of the coverage I've read about this stuff is... It comes down to tax tax concessions. Basically, if you not only cancel the series, but take it off your streaming service, you can claim a tax deduction not just for the losses that are present in this series, but also the projected future losses. All of the income that those episodes were going to make in the future can now be claimed as a tax break today. So it's Paramount saying, look, we need money badly enough that we're going to pick our own pockets from the future and Star Trek Prodigy will pay the price. And there's quite, there's a number of other shows that they've done this too as mm. well. It's like the, the Grease prequel series, Rise of the Pink Ladies. Mm. And across all streamers, they've been doing that. Like Disney Plus did a massive purge of shows off their streamer about a month ago. But this would be one of the more high profile Yeah, uh, it's not good shows. news. One hopes it will find a home somewhere else, but that is somewhat dependent on someone having enough money to pay for... A Star Trek series, an already produced Star Trek series, like Paramount's already paid for it to be made. Someone just needs to pay to the the rights to stream it now. So mm. you would expect that to be within reach of a Netflix or an Amazon Prime or whatever it might be. But there's no guarantees. And the feeling is that all of the money is draining out of this streaming gold rush and all of these companies that were competing with each other by greenlighting anything that anyone would conceivably watch. All that money is going away. So I, I am worried that we may never see Prodigy Season 2. It seems almost inconceivable that a group of Star Trek-loving nerds would have put together a full 10-episode, 20-episode season, we're told, mm. of Star Trek, and the world may never see it. One assumes it will get out someday, somehow. Someone will pay to press those Blu-rays. But yeah, it, it, there's no guarantees now that we're ever going to see it. This is... This is good, consistent Star Trek and good television, not just for kids, but for all ages. So for something to be taken off that is of such a high standard, animation-wise, music-wise, scriptwriting-wise, and bringing back Kate Mulgrew, and to have it taken off and it is nowhere. It's a sad state of affairs. In any market that gets flooded by like competition-fueled investment like this, Ultimately, what happens is that there's more product than people to pay for it at the end of the day. And mm. good stuff is going to pay the price of that. I think I felt for a while now that there was way more Star Trek being made than could be justified. Given that they barely were able to keep it on the air through, through the Enterprise era, and then it's been off the air all mm. this time, the idea that Suddenly the world is ready for more Star Trek. Like I've been ready for more Star Trek every day, <laughs> but, uh, but I don't believe there are enough of us out there to pay for four prestige series in production at the same time. And that's what we yeah, had. Yeah. So something had to give. Sadly, I think Prodigy is just the one that didn't find its audience because the people who are nostalgically attached to Star Trek, it's the last one they were going to watch because it was marketed for kids. Yes, and it was that case of we have been getting a sense of the environment shifting. Yeah. Everyone's just gone, okay, writing is on the wall. Let's go. Let's put all of our attention into making our one show, yeah. Strange New Worlds. Yeah, and it clarifies one of the reasons why Star Trek Legacy is potentially a hard sell. Because, yes, mm. all the Star Trek fans want to watch it. But there aren't enough Star Trek fans to pay for two series. And so they've already got Strange New Worlds. The sets are built. The actors are hired. The costumes are made. It's in production and it's successful. We've got a very good, proven, safe investment in a Star Trek legacy, but we don't need that right now. What we need to be doing is shutting down Star Trek series. So that's my worry. For Prodigy... I hope the fact that it is made for children is potentially its salvation because the one thing streaming services need is a lot of content for kids. 
because parents love to pay that bill so that their kids can have something to watch. <laughs> so yeah, I hope a Netflix or something can come along, pay that relatively modest bill, and get some fresh young eyeballs learning what Star Trek is and how amazing it is. Yeah, it's a sad day from for all the people involved. So wonderful voiceovers, actors, wonderful animators, wonderful script writers and directors, and everyone involved in Prodigy. It must be devastating for the them. The fact that season one was such a the... tight beginning, middle, and end makes me feel like it could have ended there and I would have been satisfied. Yes. But that also tells me that this season two that is all but done is probably also a very satisfying self-contained story that it would be a shame if we never get to see. Oh, if only we could. We'll see what happens in the future. Until next week. See you around the galaxy. 